Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcroft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, this special topic Thursday that is devoted to your questions. I have set aside an evening that is tailored to responding to your very specific questions. As I get many questions that come into my email, uh, I did decide a few months ago to just set aside an evening to respond to your questions. And as I have noted in the past, this just doesn't have to be a night devoted to apologetics. Certainly you have asked a lot of apologetic questions, uh, but it can be about anything. You can send me any question under the sun. Over the past few weeks, I have responded to uh, your questions that pertain to more spiritual theology, okay? But this evening is a quasi-apologetic question, huh? a question in regards to Mary. We have already talked about the wedding feast at Cana, and uh, recently I received the question, how could it be that Mary, who lost Jesus, God, <laughs> become our own mother? And I hear that. In the question, you make your point. You know, Mary lost God. I mean, it appears on the surface that she is a negligent mother. Yes, she is the mother of God, but she lost God. What do you do with that? So what I want to do is take this opportunity to not only respond to that question, but really engage the detail, the narrative that surrounds the finding of Jesus in the temple. So why don't we go ahead and uh, turn our Bibles to Luke chapter 2, and I will go ahead and read verses 41 to 52. Verses 41 to 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the company, they went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, seeking him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. And he said to them, How is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the sayings which he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Amen. So, yeah, what do you do <laughs> with this verse uh, 43 and 44? And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the company, they went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintances. All right, well, let me first say this. Most commentaries, including 
Protestant commentaries pick up on a very important point, and it is this. And here I'm going to draw from Edward Sree in his work, Walking with Mary. He does a nice job of articulating uh, this point that most commentaries get into. He says this, The 80-mile journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem would have taken three to four days, and people usually traveled there for the feasts in large caravans. Relatives, friends, and neighbors could share resources and assist one another. Traveling in a larger group offered protection from highway robbers. Within a large crowd of travelers, people moved at different paces, some slower than others, but the whole group would meet at the end of the day to rest together for the night. Right? So, my dear friends, since extended family often shared responsibility for watching over the children, it should not be surprising to us for parents to assume that fellow kinsmen were taking care of their child. And does this not seem to be the case with Mary and Joseph? In verse 44, supposing him to be in the company, that word company also translates as caravan. The Greek there best translates as pilgrim community. So that can better read, supposing him to be in the pilgrim community, they went a day's journey and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintances. Only at the end of the day, when everyone was gathered together for the night, did Mary and Joseph realize their son was missing? And of course, in the light of this, they rushed back to Jerusalem to search him out. So losing Jesus in the temple without a careful consideration, my friends, of the historical situation, the historical context, how Joseph and Mary would have actually traveled can leave us impoverished in our interpretation of the text. In other words, my friends, if we don't appreciate the literal sense of Scripture, and by, again, literal sense, I mean historical context, there is a privation in our interpretation of this text. Pope Benedict XVI, in responding to this question, says this, On the journey home, something unexpected happens. Jesus does not travel with the others, but stays behind in Jerusalem. His parents become aware of this only at the end of the first day's journey. For them, it was evidently quite normal to assume that Jesus was somewhere among the group of pilgrims. And here, Benedict makes the point that we just made. Luke uses the word synodia in the Greek, pilgrim community, the technical term for the traveling caravan. Given our perhaps unduly narrow image of the Holy Family, we might find this surprising. But, and I love this point by Benedict XVI, it illustrates very beautifully that in the Holy Family, freedom and obedience were combined in a healthy manner. The 12-year-old was free to spend time with the friends and children of his own age and to remain in their company during the journey. Naturally, his parents expected to see him when evening came. Did you get that last part? Naturally, his parents expected to see him when evening came. So Benedict continues to reflect here. The fact that he was absent when evening came no longer has anything to do with the freedom of young people, but really points to an entirely different level, as was to become clear. It points towards the particular mission of the Son. Now, for the parents, this was the start of days filled with what? Fear and anxiety, right? According to uh, Luke, the evangelist, it was only after three days that they found Jesus again in the temple, where he was what? Sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and, and asking them questions. Now, the three days may be explained in quite practical terms, huh? 
Mary and Joseph had spent one day traveling north. A further day uh, was needed, right, in order to retrace their steps. And on the third day, they eventually found Jesus. And so while the three days are thus a perfectly uh, plausible chronological identification, something else is to be had here. One Renee Laurentine made the point that these three days reference what? But the three days between the cross and resurrection. And Rene Laurentine says this is a silent reference to <laughs> the three days between the cross and resurrection, but nonetheless a reference to it, in anticipation of it, we could better say. And so, my friends, to engage this text is to appreciate uh, the many layered interpretation here. I mean, certainly these are days spent suffering in the absence of Jesus, right? These are days of darkness for Joseph and Mary, whose heaviness can be sensed huh, in Luke chapter 2, verse 48. Uh, Child, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been looking for you anxiously. We have been looking for you anxiously. Now, it's interesting here because that last word, anxiously, in the Greek really helps us catch a glimpse of the trauma Mary and Joseph must have been undergoing for those three days, searching for him. The, the Greek word describes a deep spiritual and mental anguish, okay? Not a despair. There's a difference between despair and anguish. Despair, there's an absence of hope. There's an absence of faith. Anguish can be filled with hope. Anguish can be filled with faith. In point of fact, when you go into the narratives of Job and Jonah, what do you find? But them calling out to God to just take them. They've had enough. They are in this profound anguish. They are in this profound misery. They are in this profound pain, but they turn to God in the midst of their pain. They turn to God in the midst of their anguish. There is not despair. No, there is anguish, an anguish that they desire to turn over to God. Mary was in anguish. And what's more, this very Greek word is actually a translation of a Hebrew that was sometimes used in the Jewish tradition to depict the terror parents experience when losing a child. So the Greek that Luke employs certainly wants us to appreciate the kind of interior anguish that Joseph and Mary must have been going through. Now, our Lord's reply to his mother's question is astounding. How so? You were looking for me? Did you not know where a child must be, that he must be in his father's house? Literally, if you were to actually go back into Luke chapter 2, verse 49, that Greek better translates, in the things of the father. So Jesus tells his parents, I am in the very place where I belong, with the father, in his house. The son, the child, he must be with his father. Now, St. Luke describes the reaction of Mary and Joseph to Jesus' words with two statements. They did not understand the saying which he spoke to them, and his mother kept all these things in her heart. Now, on this point, Benedict XVI says this, and I absolutely love this. Jesus' saying here is on too lofty a plane for us to entirely understand in this moment in time. He goes on, even Mary's faith is a journeying faith, a faith that is repeatedly shrouded in darkness and has to mature by persevering through the darkness. So Mary does not understand what our Lord says, but what do we read? 
She keeps it in her heart and allows it gradually to come to maturity there. And is not that point, my friends, so important for us that only in the heart can what needs to properly mature, properly mature, far too often we want to stay in the intellect and figure everything out in the intellect. And we need to use our intellect. But we have to make that pilgrimage from the mind to the heart. And using our mind, using our intellect, using the knowledge that we have accrued over time, but pour it into our heart. Ponder again and again. Jesus' words exceed our rational power. Again and again, they surpass our capacity to understand each and every moment and each and every encounter in its sum total form. We have this temptation, as Benedict highlights, to reduce them, to bend them to our own criteria. And certainly, that is understandable. But taking the disposition of Mary that we read of here in Luke 2:50 and 51, we are to ponder, mindful that we just simply cannot access the entirety of God's will in that moment, but by pondering, by discerning, we can begin to separate and distinguish, balance and weigh what it is in fact that Jesus is trying to tell us. Brothers and sisters, all good exegesis, that is interpreting sacred scripture, requires of us the humility to leave intact this loftiness that so often overtaxes us, huh? We are never to reduce Jesus' sayings by asking to what extent we can take him at his word. There's always something more. There's always something deeper. And that's the beauty of studying sacred scripture. There's just not one layer, two layers, three layers, but so many more. Why? Because God's love is inexhaustible. God's love is inexhaustible. You can never exhaust the love and the depth of God. It is infinite. And so there's infinite value to the inspired word of God, which communicates the love of God. So please let us be careful in reducing a sacred text to something that we might think it means on the surface. Go deeper. This is what we do here on Seats of Truth. This is what we are doing here this evening. And so it is. Believing in sacred scripture as the inspired word of God means submitting to what? The need to stretch ourselves not bend God's word to our own criteria, but stretch ourselves, allowing God to mold us and shape us according to his revelation, huh? You know, here, I'm going to go ahead and, and pull from my own book, <laughs> A Heart for Evangelizing. I engage Mary's role as the first evangelist, and I make a point here and a footnote that brings into play Mary's pondering, so I'm just going to go ahead and and read what I put here in this footnote. Also, there is an insight to be gained by contrasting the Greek symbalein, meaning to throw together, with the Greek diabolein, which means to throw across, to scatter. From diabolein, we get the English word diabolical, which we often translate generically as belonging to Satan. Satan's function is to leave us scattered, thrown asunder, confused about everyday life. We overcome the tempter's tactics, Satan, the diabolical, by piecing together, making sense of, in God's grace, 
each situation and person we encounter in our everyday life. In other words, we overcome Satan's diabolane by imitating Mary's symbolane. Indeed, there is enmity between Satan and the woman. And of course, there I'm footnoting Genesis 3.15. Why hit the pause button to engage what's going on there? Because, my friends, there's another lesson to be had when we contemplate the significance of Mary's pondering. It is the very thing that we need to do to oppose Satan's tactics, the tempter's tactics. He wants to go about confusing our everyday life. He wants to throw all of these things in our way only by pondering, okay, contemplating, weighing, and counterweighing can we begin to understand the ways in which God works. And what about verse 51 here? Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This verse should bring us back to the initial question uh, with this uh, presupposition that Mary was a negligent mother. If Mary was a negligent mother, why would the Son of God go back to the home of Joseph and Mary and grow in wisdom and stature? My dear friends, Jesus Christ is fully divine, yes, but also fully human. And as a human being, he does not live in some abstract presence, but as Benedict XVI highlights, he is rooted in a concrete history, a place and a time in the different phases of human life. And this is what gives concrete shape to his knowledge. He grows in wisdom and stature because he is obedient to Mary and Joseph of Nazareth. How beautiful it is to reflect, to ponder, okay, to weigh the significance of the God-man spending 30 of his 33 years here on earth with Joseph and Mary. That, I believe, my friends, should be enough for us to reflect with, that the God who could spend any and every waking moment in time here on earth chooses only 33 years, and of those 33 years, chooses 30 years to spend with Joseph and Mary. There's great value in this, my friends, to just consider that. What does that mean? Well, certainly, it elevates the importance and sanctity of marriage and family life, something that should not be lost on us as we reflect into this. Now, in the Annunciation and Visitation, Mary's role is what? That of the mother of the Messiah. But gradually we see that the mother is being invited to share in the cross of her son and to participate in his redemptive mission. And we need to make this point because it is very much a part of this narrative that we read of in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52. At her son's birth in the poor and, and humble conditions in Bethlehem, Mary experiences what? but some of those initial sufferings associated with her son's rejection. Remember, my friends, Mary was rejected. That's why she needed to go to the manger. That's why she needed to, to go to the cave. And brothers and sisters, is it not there where we begin to discover the meaning of man? G.K. Chesterton once said that if you wish to go to the caveman to discover the origin and meaning of who we are as human beings, then go to the man who was born in a cave. 
So Mary experiences some of those initial sufferings associated with her son's rejection. How about the presentation where she learns from Simeon how she will share in the sufferings Jesus will face? What do we read? A sword will pierce your heart. And now when Jesus is 12, Mary directly experiences the distress of being separated for her son for three days. Talk to any mother about what it means to lose a son for five minutes, let alone an hour, three hours, or for that matter, three days. I will tell you as a father, okay, there is a profound anxiety. It overwhelms you. It overruns you. So Mary is perfectly experiencing this anguish. And then, of course, she learns from him that this was all part of the Father's plan, that he must do the will of the Father. All throughout the Gospel of John, we read this must. He, he must be at the business of his Father. Now here, John Paul II taught that Jesus, by remaining in Jerusalem, was preparing Mary for her unique cooperation in the mystery of redemption. This is what St. John Paul the Great had to say. At the temple in Jerusalem, in this prelude to his saving mission, Jesus associates his mother with himself. No longer is she merely the one who gave him birth, but the woman who, through her own obedience to the Father's plan, can cooperate in the mystery of redemption. Thus, keeping in her heart an event so charged with meaning, Mary attained a new dimension of her cooperation in salvation. Okay, so this should bring us back to what Benedict XVI was saying about being careful to bend our interpretation to our own criteria, but go deeper and deeper and deeper into sacred scripture so that we might have a clear understanding of Mary's role in salvation history. And we should say something else here, my friends. As we reflect into this question and engage this text, we do need to uh, personalize this, huh? This scene can very much teach us an important lesson. Dr. Sri reflects into this in his work, Walking with Mary. Now, like Mary, we may experience times in a relationship with Jesus when we feel what? Anxious, unsure of where he is, without this understanding of what he is doing. Brothers and sisters, whether we are suffering trials in life, uncertainty about where he is leading us, or, or maybe just dryness in prayer. We search for him, but he is seemingly nowhere to be found. Let this verse, let this passage, let this narrative be a consolation. This scene reminds us that Jesus is always doing the will of the Father, and his work sometimes causes us, as it did Mary, what? Pain! In moments when it feels as if Jesus is lost and, and we do not understand what is happening, what should we do but adopt the attitude of Mary who did not panic but instead prayerfully, as Luke 2.51 reminds us, kept all these things in her heart. You know, my friends, there are so many situations in our life that we just chalk up to mystery where we say we just can't understand it. And certainly, as I've talked about it, we cannot fully understand God's mystery in that moment. But if we ponder that encounter and the meaning of that encounter, it just might come into view, in view enough where we will be made to see what God wants us to see. 
okay? What did Mary do? Mary trusted that there was a purpose to her ordeal, a spiritual lesson that she was being invited to learn. What was that phrase from Benedict XVI? Her faith was a journeying faith. She was being invited to go deeper and deeper into the mysterious, sacred heart of Jesus. And of course, she believed God would reveal to her the meaning of her pain and darkness in due time. And so should we, with the confident assurance that God does have a plan in our lives, ponder that there is a reason why we are going through whatever it is that we are going through. And this, my friends, is a very personal vocation. When we are suffering, St. John Paul II reminds us, we are to take up the vocation of journeying into the heart of God that we might come to understand what it is in fact he is doing. And as we render our hearts to God, slowly but surely he will reveal himself to you as he revealed himself to Mary. Brothers and sisters, the finding of Jesus in the temple was something of an anticipation of what Mary was going to encounter on the cross. And once we enter into that deeper truth, will we then begin to discover how God reveals himself in our lives, how one moment prepares us for the next and the next prepares us for the following moment. In the end, we can never understand the next or the following moment if we have not entered into the present moment, okay? The present moment that gives shape and form to who we are and how we are called to love. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.